Jesus, all throughout his ministry, was very inclusive. Now, not inclusive in the way that most people think uh, we mean today, but when people hear it, they assume it means that we must accept people for who they are and never make any attempts to try to change them. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus was inclusive in the sense that no one was outside of his grace. No matter who you were, he was willing to bring you in and accept you as part of his group, but not without changing you. Jesus says in Mark 2.17 that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was inclusive because he came for sinners. He came for the outcast, for those that were outside, the perverted, for those that were rejected by society. He came for the simple, with the simple message of acceptance for who they were, but with an understanding that they could change and that they were able to change through the power and the message of Jesus. And so when Jesus calls a person to him, he calls them to come and die. He calls them to take up their cross and to leave behind their former life and to come and walk alongside him as he lives in the will of God. And so Jesus is not inclusive in the way that makes no cause to change a person, but he does the opposite. He changes everything about a person right down to the depths of who they are. He changes them from the inside out and he makes them into something very, very different. And the way he does it is he strips them of identity, their identity, but he gives them a new identity that makes them more truly who they were intended to be when God created them. And they are more genuine. So the work that Paul is describing here in the passage is this process by which God restores people and reconciles them, not just to himself, but also to each other. When he creates this new community of people that are of all different walks and stripes and different areas of life, he brings them in and makes them part of this covenant message. He gives us a radically new identity. We're made into what Paul calls a one, this one new man. So this one new man approach of Paul is this very rich and theologically driven point that Christ in his flesh has laid this foundation for a new building, and this new building is the church. The church is this new building, and Christ is its chief cornerstone. And so often we have heard the church being called uh, the body of Christ, and that's exactly what it is. It's exactly what's being built in this passage. The, reconcil uh, the reconciliation of Jews to God and the reconciliation of Gentiles to God means that both of those groups are reconciled together. Because both of them are reconciled to God, both can be reconciled to each other. And so wherever the gospel goes, wherever the gospel does, it brings redemption, restoration, and reconciliation between all sorts of groups. Uh, vision it like this well-watered, nutrient-rich garden that grows and flourishes, and wherever, wherever this garden is planted, it just is full of life. It produces its fruit in season. No matter where it goes, life springs from it. And so everyone can see this work, and they'll either look at this work that Jesus does through the gospel with wonder and awe, or they'll look at it with hatred and disdain. What do I mean? Well, I'm sure many of the Jews who, who saw their fellow countrymen 
become part of this group full of, with, with the Gentiles, um, to see them associate with these Gentiles uh, would have made them full of hatred and malice, seeing them restored in fellowship. And it's the same with the Gentiles. To be part of this group with the Jews and the Gentiles brought with it a lot of societal problems. To see their fellow, their fellow countrymen renouncing their gods, renouncing their culture and their identity in order to worship this foreign Israelite God with a bunch of people that they already don't like. Yeah, it created, uh, it created chaos. And the gospel, it brought life and restoration and redemption, but yet many looked on it with hatred in the early church. Many people looked on at that little early church community and they despised it. They did not like it. They didn't want to associate with the other. And so they had to give up in order to become a Christian, sometimes century-old conflicts. And see, the unhappiness of others brought these people, the, sorry, the happiness of others brought these people misery. To see these people happy and flourishing and full of joy and reconciliation, restoration, brought them anger. And the early church had to face this animosity from both sides. Now, there's this documentary I watched on Japan um, and it's about some of the really strange practices that some of the, some of the Japanese people have. Um, and, and they're kind of deviant practices. Um, and it just talks about how, especially in Tokyo, every single individual is this massive city. Most of the people stick to themselves. They don't really have this sense of community. They live on their own. They do things by themselves. They don't really have long-term relationships with people. And it's even more rare for them to have children. And so these, um, Japanese people could sometimes do these bizarre things. Like one of the practices they had was uh, these businessmen would go and pay these young girls to simply lie down and make unbreaking eye contact with them for hours. It was a bizarre practice to just lie down and make this unbreaking eye contact. Um, but that would, would be all that happens. Um, some others would pay to have this um, small cubicle where there was a computer screen and they would play video games all day. They'd work from that computer screen and then they'd sleep on the floor because it was a lot cheaper than renting an apartment. And so that was their entire life. This one cubicle, every, every one of their relationships and community was all online and they'd never leave the building. And one of these girls that would be paid by these businessmen to just make unbreaking eye contact, she said that anytime she saw a happy family, or a happy couple, um, she said it would make her angry. It would make her angry. And she said that all she could think of doing was how to ruin their day. All she wanted in that moment was to see those people in happiness and in joy, and she'd want to ruin their day. And it's because for her, her life is so miserable, and she has no real community and no real happiness, that when she sees people with happiness, she wants to destroy it. And I'm not sure if you've had a similar experience in a moment of your life where you've been sad or you've been down or you've felt this lack of community and you've seen other people um, and it's made you angry to see them happy. It's made you angry to see them with joy. And it's a similar thing in the early church. The animosity and hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles um, meant that even those who were restored and reconciled in the church, they were seen as traitors. They were seen as unclean to go and associate with those people. It created all sorts of chaos in the early church. And sometimes people may judge you for associating with certain types of people. Some people may despise your joy and happiness for what you've done in your life. And so we are saved primarily for God's glory. We're saved for his glory, but we're also saved to build something new. 
We're saved so that this new community can come about. And so that redemption and restoration of relationships through the gospel, we can see that physically, even though on either side we may find people despising us or saying negative things about us. And so that's why Jesus came uh, to preach peace. Christ's work on the cross brings a message of peace to the world. Now, his preaching was localized primarily to the lost sheep of Israel when Jesus did his ministry. But when he was resurrected from the dead, he sent out his messengers. It's what the word apostle means, is sent one. He sent out his uh, personally appointed messages to go out and proclaim this message to the world. And that's exactly who the apostle Paul was. He was bringing the message of Jesus, preaching peace to those who were far, those who were Gentiles. But did you catch that? In this, Paul also says that Jesus preached peace to those who were near. So those who are far, they're the Gentiles. They're going out and preaching peace to the Gentiles. But who are those that are near? Well, it's the Jews. Because the Jews need reconciliation to God just as much as the Gentiles do. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God, even the Jews. Even the Jews have uh, under God's wrath. They need reconciliation to him just as much as anyone else. Even the Jewish people who were the closest to the covenants, the closest to the message of grace, they still needed this peace that only Jesus could bring because they, just like the Gentiles, had completely fallen short of all of God's righteous requirements through the law. See, once the Jews, they used to call the Gentiles names back in verse 11. They used to call them the uncircumcision, basically morally unclean, filthy They used to call them names, but now there is fellowship and friendship. Once there was hostility, but now there is community. And Christ is the only way to bring real reconciliation and peace. So look at verse uh, 18 to 19. See, everything that the Gentiles were separated from in verse 12 has been reversed. Everything that they, they had issues with before has now been reversed. Uh, before they were separated from Christ... But now they have a Messiah in Jesus. Before they didn't have Jesus, but now they do. Before they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, but now they are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and members of the household of God. Before they were strangers to the covenants of promise, weren't they? But now they're participants in the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Before they had no hope and were without God. But now they are his children. And part of his household. What an amazing distance the Ephesian church has traveled. What an amazing vast distance from being dead in sin to alive in Christ. What a massive distance to travel. To be so hopeless but now they are hopeful. To be so destitute but now they're rich beyond their wildest dreams in Jesus. So much hostility but now restoration. See the gospel of Jesus really is the greatest news that you can ever hear. Together with the Jews, uh, the Ephesian church have this same access in one spirit to the Father. Did you, did you catch that in, that in the verse? See, both Jews and Gentiles possess the Holy Spirit, and because of that, they have the same access to the Father because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. See, we have access to the Father because now we are children of His household. Now we, are, now we have access because we are part of His family. We are part of his family. And if you remember back to, uh, to chapter 1, verse 18, we, are in, we inherit alongside all the saints of the household of God. 
we, we can now draw near to God as his people. And God listens and hears our prayers and he calls us his own. And we can live in the security of knowing who God is and have this dynamic relationship with him through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is so integral, so important in the gospel message. So what a huge distance the Gentiles have traveled from being so far away from God and all the promises and being strangers and aliens to now members of the household of God through the blood of Jesus. If you're a Christian listening to this message, you have traveled this same distance. You have traveled the same distance. See, we are fellow citizens and saints. It's a privilege above all privileges to be counted as one of God's people. What an honor to be called a saint. It's God's set apart people in this world. That is who you are if you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are God's set apart person, a saint, a fellow citizen with the rest of the of Christians. And so if, if what we've been reading in Ephesians hasn't brought you great joy, I would say that you need to consider these things even more. You need to meditate on these things even more. You need to internalize them in your hearts because this message is really the greatest message you can ever hear. And so do you believe that? Do you believe that? You are a member of God's household when before you were not. This community is built on a new foundation, a firm foundation. It is built to last throughout all time. And it is built to keep growing across all time. There's never been a moment since the resurrection of Jesus where God's people were not growing somewhere around the world, where the church of God was not uh, increasing because of God's mercy and grace poured out on the world. God's plans can never be thwarted. Uh, Paul says in verse 20 to 22, he says that, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Do you notice how often that word together comes in? Because it's not something that happens just as an individual, but together corporately as a group, as a body, as a church. And many people think the church is a building. And we haven't really helped, helped out that perception because we'll often talk about the building as the church, you know, the church on the end of the street or something like that. But it's just a building. It's just a building. It's the church, the people of God that may go into that building, but it's the people of God that are the church. The church has no walls or stained glass windows. It is a group of sometimes unlikely people who are brought together by the will of God to be his visible kingdom here on earth. It's a group that is built not on good deeds or philosophy or shared heritage, but it is a group that's built on the foundation of the apostolic message of Jesus. The gospel given to us by the apostles who were personally sent by Jesus, men like Paul, or Peter, or Barnabas, who were sent with the message of Jesus, with a specific message to give to the nations, and the prophets, who were these spiritually enabled men and women who spoke into the situations of the church as the church was getting started. And both groups, both of these groups, laid the foundation of the church, but the foundation was Jesus. Uh, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 11, Paul says this, he says, according to the grace of God given to me, 
Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul is saying in this passage that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected and yet through him the building grows. The apostles were laying this foundation and the foundation that was laid down is Jesus Christ. There could be no other foundation for a church than Jesus. If churches build their foundation on anything else, it will be a disaster for the people of God. It has to be Jesus every day, every moment. We meet together. It's all about Jesus because he's the chief cornerstone. In the ancient world, when you would build any building, mainly out of stone, especially an impressive building, the most important stone you would lay was the cornerstone. You would put it in the corner of the building, and there, the rest of the building would be built in relation to that cornerstone. That corner, that first laying of the cornerstone basically indicated what the rest of the building was going to look like. Every other stone was placed in reference to this cornerstone. And that is the same in uh, the body of Christ, because this temple that is being built is always built in relation to the cornerstone. First uh, Peter 2, 5-6 says this. He's talking about Christians. He says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. See, as individuals, we're being added to this building, the building of God, the temple of God. Each rock selected by God placed every stone perfectly into this temple as it's being built. The temple grows with each new living stone that's being put on and each stone is you and I, members of the church that get placed into this and they masterfully are placed by God into this beautiful temple. And so why is all this happening? So that we could be a dwelling place for God and by His Spirit. God Himself will dwell among us. Now this is important because if you remember in Ezekiel 10, God's glory had departed from the temple. God had not made his dwelling place with human beings for a long time. And now, through Jesus and his body, we now have this new temple. And God's dwelling place now is with men. It's in our hearts. It's with us through the church. And we live in this very individualistic, closed country. And what do I mean by that? I mean that, you know, we're very private people most of the time. Most Australians are very private people. Uh, we live in our own little bubbles, our own little kingdoms. Uh, we craft our community around um, interests that we may have. And we're devoid, most of us are devoid of any really long-lasting, robust community. And through the church, we need to embody and visualize this message so that they can taste and see what real gospel community looks like. Are we full of conflict and animosity and pride or arrogance? Or is our community marked by grace and redemption and reconciliation and peace. For the former things flow from our fallen nature, but the latter things come when there's a general work, gen, uh, gen, genuine work of Jesus on the cross. See, this temple that God is building is a work of His hands. It's God's work. It's the work of His mercy and grace. And so how have we gone being a part of that work? How do we go as a church in embodying this message, this new community of gospel work done and paid for by the blood of Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you love us. 
Lord, we come before your throne of grace, recognising that our communities are still full of sin and I still fall so much short of the community envisioned by your son Jesus when he came to this world. And Lord, we can often not want to associate with the outsiders, not want to associate with those who are different and stay with the areas that are comfortable. But Lord, help us to step outside of ourselves and bring this message of reconciliation. Help us to see the need for your gospel and to reach every man, woman and child in this world. Please, Lord, we pray, saturate this country with gospel communities. Help us, Lord, to be this community and to not just live for ourselves or even just live for our own comforts or pleasures, Lord, but to live for your glory. We bring these things before you in the precious name of Jesus, we pray.